This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 2nd, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In an important First Amendment victory against regulation of campaign speech, the Supreme Court has struck down so-called aggregate contribution limits to campaigns. Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, breaks down the ruling. Well, we know that now aggregate limits, meaning the amount that a person can contribute in total of all their contributions to both political committees and PACs and candidates are, don't exist anymore as, as a First Amendment because the First Amendment uh, does not allow them to exist under the narrow holding of 5-4 that the Supreme Court released today. It's not – the sky is not falling. Uh, this is not Citizens United 2. This is not the carte blanche for – these people to now, rich people to now take over our political system. It's a sort of a small adjustment that's not going to affect a ton of people because not many people give that much money to political campaigns. Now, just to be uh, clear on what the issue is, this is not about contribution limits individually to candidates. This is about contribution limits overall. Yes. That is, you giving to 535 incumbents or challengers and that this – the argument was this has some sort of unique corrupting power that some number below that doesn't have. That was the argument. Uh, in the Buckley case, which is sort of the foundation of modern campaign finance jurisprudence, they make a difference between contributions, things you give to a candidate and expenditures, things that you spend on your own behalf. And they allowed the government to limit the contributions. At that time, it was $1,000. Now it's $2,600 for primary in general means you can give a candidate $5,200. Uh, and the, the government has said that that is corrupting – that is below the corrupting limit. So they are not very concerned that $5,200 $5, is going to corrupt candidates. But then there's another limit, which is the total amount of your 5,200 contributions going above some limit, which is $48,600 for candidates uh, and $74,600 for political committees and, and political action committees. And they say that that is corrupting in some way. And the, the question the court was dealing with is how could you create something corrupting in the aggregate if every single individual part that, that it was made up of is not corrupting because every single individual part is below the corrupting limit of a campaign donation. And the Supreme Court said uh, that the justifications that the government had offered to say that there was such a concern didn't pass the First Amendment test. And that's a very important part because they applied a pretty strict First Amendment test, which is what the First Amendment demands when you are applying it to political speech. And a lot of the debate really is about how strict the test that, the, that you're going to apply to the government regulations. And because other people seem to think money is not speech and that it's this, we're just talking about money in elections, they want to apply a less stringent test and just sort of say whatever the government says goes and, and the First Amendment doesn't allow that. What was the breakdown here on the case? This, is it fairly typical? 5-4. We have the 5-4 division as always. Uh, four justices, Scalia, Alito, uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, – <clears throat> And uh, Kennedy joined on to Ju Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, uh, striking him down. But Thomas wrote separately, as he often does, to make a very principled argument, which similar to the one that we made in the Cato brief, that the entire rubric of campaign finance is problematic and needs to be – we need to overturn the Buckley decision from 1976. But he also agreed that to strike this down. So we had the five conservative justices against the four liberal justices. And if you read the opinions and just if you listen to commentary that you'll hear in the next few days, you will see the incredibly stark difference of the vision of the First Amendment that is being sort of played out here in all of these 
poor decisions. And on one side, you have the conservatives saying, you know, we're only talking about a specific type of corruption, mainly buying votes, buying politicians, and getting them to vote for you. And and the liberals are saying, what about corrupting the marketplace of ideas? What about having people speaking too loudly? Okay, let's talk about the corrupting of the marketplace of ideas. Now, is it first first of all before we get to that, is it safe to say that the John Paul Stevens view that basically everything is conduct and uh, taking a very narrow view of what constitutes speech is that off the table? Is that dead? It is dead, but only by a very small, very slim majority. Uh, what the left is asking for, Justice Breyer wrote the dissenting opinion in this, is he wants the government in charge of sort of regulating political speech for the purposes of, of fairness and, and not – and sort of to forget about this actually buying politicians regime but to look at the how loud people are speaking and trying to come up with some test where you figure out, oh, well, that person has a microphone and this person doesn't have a microphone so maybe we should give them both microphones and have the government sort of affirmatively involved in the political process in the political speech process for the purposes of fairness as opposed to the much simpler and Madisonian principle that the First Amendment says, get the government out of that area. Let free people speak and some people are going to speak louder than others. The New York Times is always going to be louder than I am and the government has no interest in shutting up the New York Times or trying to equalize the speech of different people. And that vision is still out there. Four justices voted for it today and it could switch very easily tomorrow. There is no good way from looking at this to say that if you don't give the if to say that if you give the government the power to equalize voices that you are putting the government in the role of deciding which voices ought to be equalized. Exactly, exactly. And it's crazy in, to do this, to put people who who have to get elected in charge of these rules about getting them elected. And Robert said something very explicitly along those lines. Every time someone tries to make sort of a test that you could think of where if you tried to make the marketplace of ideas fair, they come up with something that's, that's something like you should be allowed to speak as loudly as those who already agree with you in society. It's something like that. It's, we shouldn't have people who, who have voices louder than their opinion is, is held. And that's a crazy test to think of how the government could actually put that forward. It's like, oh, well, libertarians are 7 percent of the population, so they get 7 percent speech unit power or whatever. Uh, you couldn't do that. And it's against the First Amendment to have the government even involved in that. And there's always going to be someone who's going to be shut out on that. Now, the president broadly agrees, I think, with the liberal justices when it comes to this kind of issue. And it goes to what your prior preference or what your prior opinion would have been in the absence of, quote unquote, corrupting influence of certain types of speech in the marketplace of ideas. Mm -hmm. There's a big sort of chestnut of political psychology at the at the core of campaign finance and the, the way you can sort of find it is by asking your people the question, why do people disagree with you? Because if you have your beliefs, you say, well, clearly in a just world, we would have single-payer health care. And everyone who has any rational mode of thought would agree with that. So I, there has to be an explanation for why we don't have single-payer health care. And the one that they look for is the corporations. I'm making scare quotes there. Big interests who are out there to change minds illegitimately where in, in a pure world, uh, everyone would agree with you if there weren't corrupting influences. So the big danger here for the First Amendment is the First Amendment is always been used to 
mostly protect people who people who needed protection, who didn't have popular opinions, not the, the popular opinions. But the big danger is using this to actually just shut up people that you disagree with. And that is so much at the core of a lot of these questions of corruption. It is a very dangerous world if you start defining corruption as people who disagree with you. Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.